Well, this morning we will be examining, if you didn't already notice the theme, the substance of the grace of God. And the uh, catalyst verse for today's message is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. But before we begin, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are mighty, and just in all of your ways. Teach us and guide us through your word and through the power of your spirit. Mold us and shape us into the image of Christ so that every aspect of our lives may be devoted to your glory and to your honor. Amen. Well, if you want to follow along with me, we are in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And this is where we get the title for today's message, The Riches of His Grace. And we will be looking at that phrase, or rather, what are the riches of God's grace? Now, I'm sure that we can all explain that common difference between grace and mercy. Grace is typically defined as goodwill towards another. And mercy, kind of being the opposite, is defined as the act of having compassion on someone who's guilty. Therefore, based on these two two definitions, we say, and rightfully, rightfully so, that grace is receiving what we do not deserve, and mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. These distinctions are correct. However, they fail in one aspect. They are merely defining the function or mechanism of grace and mercy, and they are not defining their substance. When we define grace as being, as being given what we did not earn, we are correct, but that isn't the answer that we're really looking for. We want to know the substance of this grace. What is it that we have been given? What does this grace contain? What are its components? It's kind of like this. When you receive a gift that's wrapped up, do you leave it wrapped up? No. You open it. And if you didn't open it, you'd seem pretty silly. Because the wrapped gift isn't the present. The wrapping and the box aren't the gift. The contents inside are the gift. So in this way, when we read a phrase like the one found in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, we should ask, what exactly are the contents of God's grace that Paul is talking about here? As well as asking, how has God given us or shown us this grace? So to answer these questions, we need to uncover what is Paul communicating about God's grace in the book of Ephesians? Well, according to the commentator Charles Hodge, he summarizes Paul's purpose for writing to the Christian Gentiles in Ephesus for the following two purposes. He says the first purpose is to bring them to a just appreciation of the plan of redemption as a scheme devised from eternity by God for the manifestation of the glory of his grace. 
That's the first purpose. The second purpose is to make them, that is the the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, to make them aware of the greatness of the blessing which they enjoyed by sharing its benefits. So, if this is indeed what Paul intended for the Christians in Ephesus to learn, then we would be right and justified to read and study it for the same reason. I'm giving you a hallmark of good exegesis. We start with, or good biblical interpretation, we start with the author's context and purpose, and then we move to ours. So that is what I will do today. Beginning, uh, or rather, to see the proper context of verse 7, we actually have to look at verses 3 through 14. So if you have your Bibles open, you will probably see that verses 3 through 14 are split up Uh, There's not any section titles in there usually, Uh, but there will be periods and, you know, like sentences are beginning and stopping. However, verses 3 through 14 are actually one of the longest sentences in the whole Bible. I don't know if you were aware of that or not. Uh, It's one single sentence, and so we can have confidence that this section is one continuous thought. Paul is making one continuous statement here. And we will see that this section, verses 3 through 14, is very rich with meaning. So in verse 3, Paul begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right off the bat, Paul is doing something very important that is very easy for us to miss. This initial blessing is used to mirror a Hebrew blessing, which I'm going to butcher this word, but which is called a baracha. And this blessing is used in the Old Testament. When it's used, it's usually in the form of blessed be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or blessed be the God of our fathers. The purpose of this blessing, the purpose of using this blessing, served to remind the listeners, the children of God, or Israel, that they, being united with the patriarchs, also shared in their blessings, the promises, as well as the covenant with the Lord. So it's a unification indicator. But here, Paul makes an obvious change to the formula of this blessing. We are not united to God any longer through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather, we are united with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything that follows regarding our condition and our relationship with God is established in the person and work of Christ. The logical question then is to ask, what has Christ secured for us? What are we united to through him? What has God secured through his son? Paul answers this with the qualification, who that is God, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You might be thinking, we're not getting any clearer yet. (laughs) He has secured for his church every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These blessings are first distinguished as spiritual because they are first and foremost born or originate from the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they are primarily of spiritual significance or spiritual value. And what is meant by that 
is that we cannot go and trade these in at the local pawn shop. We cannot trade them in for goods and services in this life. They are not for barter. Furthermore, Paul makes this even more clear by stating that these spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places, or heavenly realms, as, as some translations will say. This does not mean, however, that these blessings, or that we receive these blessings only after we enter into eternity. Rather, Paul is making, again, an interesting statement about the condition of every Christian. That is, we are already citizens of heaven, and therefore we are living, as it were, as the citizens of two cities, two nations, this world and the next. This dual nature, or the idea of already and not yet, which is a phrase we, we hear uh, often, is most often understood within the discussion of our sanctification. We are saved, and at the same time, we are being sanctified and molded into the image of Christ, which is preparing us for eternity. Through sanctification, we are putting off the old sinful self, and we are putting on the new creation. This, of course, is not being done by our own power, but through the Holy Spirit. So, too, Paul is using this in the same way, so, too, the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ and makes us citizens of heaven while we still live here on this side of death. Paul is expressing that while we live in this world, we still simultaneously benefit from the blessings that will be fully realized in eternity. Then what are these spiritual blessings? The first is our election, which we might call the divine conspiracy of God from eternity past to restore us to new life in Christ. Verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul is stating that God the Father has chosen us to be his children through Christ. So we have been brought to new life to be his holy and blameless children. What's more, Paul explains that our election as the children of God, or those who were predestined and chosen before the foundation of the world, he frames it as adopted as sons. We are adopted as sons. This phrase adopted as sons is wasted on us today. But Paul's original audience would have certainly known the deep significance of this statement. Quick history lesson. In Roman society, for the most part, there were exceptions, so I don't want to get in trouble in saying that only men could inherit. But for the most part, men were el only men were eligible to inherit title or property. And the adoption process was often a very lengthy endeavor. Most adoptions were formally set within the will, the living will, a patriarch of the family or the head of the household. A will, and, uh, and therefore the adoption certificate within it, required seven witnesses, seven individual witnesses, to seal the, the scroll, to seal the document. These witnesses all had to put their physical seal on the scroll, showing that they would testify that the contents that were in the will were in fact the intended wishes of the person to whom the will belonged to. Nowadays, we sit down with our lawyer and he, 
he's the only witness that's needed. At this time, it required seven witnesses. Such was Roman law. <clears throat> also, and most importantly, the adopted son would assume the status of the firstborn over any existing biological sons, even if those biological children were older. So adoption in Roman society was very meaningful. It was a great honor for the one who was being adopted. And there was also another very interesting element. And we learn this from one of the most well-known cases of adoption from the first century or from the time um, of Christ and his apostles. This story of adoption is found in that of the adoption of Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time when Christ was born. Caesar Augustus, who was originally called Octavian, was the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. And it was only after Julius Caesar's assassination, after his death, that Octavian discovered that his grand-uncle had actually made him his heir and had commanded that he would be adopted as his son at the time of his death. What is also very interesting about this is that Octavian was seemingly unaware that this was going to take place. He did not find out until after the death of Julius Caesar. Therefore, the adoption only took effect at the time of, the, at the time of death of Julius Caesar. It was his last will and testament that gave his title and authority to Octavian. So the son, the party who was being adopted, didn't even have to be aware of it. They weren't even necessarily required to know that it was going to happen. Now, in Roman society at this time, and at the time that Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus, everyone would have known this story. The leader of the world at that time, was, ad or previously, was adopted. So everyone would have been familiar with this story. Um, process of adoption. It was common knowledge, common knowledge in the culture. This is almost certainly what Paul was using as reference when he framed Christian election as that of being adopted as sons. Consequently, this is why we are now called the new Israel. We, who were not the natural sons of God, have been adopted and therefore, we now assume the position as the firstborn sons of God. We have inherited the birthright and the honor that formerly belonged to Israel. I had a professor at Northwest uh, who told us once uh, in a, um, I think it was, a, it was actually a New Testament class. Uh, he told us that if we ever really wanted to offend a Jewish person, which I don't know what circumstance we'd be in where we really want to do that, but he said if you ever really want to offend a Jewish person, Simply tell them that yourself, as a Christian, is actually more Jewish than they are. I have more rights to the promises of God than you do. And then you can explain to them, that's because I have inherited the birthright as the firstborn son of God through the work of Christ. So that was the first blessing, our election as adopted sons. Paul moves on to the second spiritual blessing, which is our redemption. This is found in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We are reconciled to God and delivered over from sin and death to new life, 
How is this accomplished? How is our redemption won? Through the blood of Christ. His sacrifice was the procurement of our redemption. The forgiveness of our sins was purchased by Christ from the Father for the debt that we owed to the Father. And the important element to this is that while Christ lived a blameless life, never failing to uphold the law of God, our redemption, our atonement, still required his blood. His sinless life apparently was not enough. It still required his blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Why was his blood necessary? To answer that, we can look in two places in the Old Testament. The first is in Exodus chapter 12. This is the first reference to blood sacrifice, and it is, of course, in regard to the first Passover. Moses has announced to the Egyptians that the angel of death would sweep through Egypt and kill every firstborn male child in the land. Then Moses commands the Hebrews to take the blood of a lamb and wipe it on the doorposts of their homes, and then the angel would pass through, or as the angel passed through, he would see the blood and pass over that house and spare any of the firstborn sons. Therefore, the presence of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was a sign to the angel to spare those inside from the wrath of God. The blood of the lamb is the sign and, and seal to spare them from the wrath of God. The second mention of blood sacrifice, which is a little more detailed, is regarding the laws of sin offerings. And this is found in Leviticus, both chapters 4 and chapter 17. Now, chapter 17, verse 11, has this to say regarding the blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We can see now that Paul is stating that our redemption and new life in Christ required the source of life itself. It is remarkably poetic that the sustaining source of life, blood, was necessary as a sacrifice in order to generate new life and new creation. It took the sacrifice of Jesus' physical life in order to give us new life. It required the death of his body, the destruction of his body, to make us a new creation. And so in our redemption through his blood, we can see the highest measure of God's grace and goodwill towards us. He gave us his most precious possession, that which had the highest value in all of existence. His very own son was given to secure our place as his children and make us pure and holy and able to commune with him once again. This, uh, this discussion of our redemption and the blood of Christ in theology is known as penal substitution. <clears throat> that is the study or one of the subcategories of our redemption. Now, this designation, penal substitution, is in regard to, or most often used in the, the analogy of a courtroom setting. That is to say, Christ was the substitute for the penalty of sin that we deserved. 
And one of the greatest explanations of penal substitution, or one of my favorite, is that of St. Anselm of Canterbury in his work titled, Why the God-Man? Now, this is definitely worth reading, uh, Anselm's work, Why the God-Man? I found out that you can download a digital copy copy for 99 cents, so you don't have a lot of excuses. Um, I will warn you that there is a section kind of towards the end where he starts talking about angels, and it gets a little strange. But uh, other than that, it's wonderful. Uh, Published in 1099, Anselm puts forward the following arguments for why Christ must be fully God and fully man, and thus the title of his work, Why the God-Man? Why must God be God and man, or why must the Savior be God and man? It is organized in a classic Socratic dialogue form, which if you don't know what that means, that is where you have, a, you have two individuals. You have a teacher and then a student. And so Anselm is the teacher, and his friend Basso is the student. So you have a statement by Anselm and then a question by Basso, and down the, down the work it goes. Basso keeps asking questions and giving challenges. Anselm's argument for why the God-man goes like this. We, being God's unique creation, who bear his image, owe God honor. We owe God honor through our perfect obedience of his law. If we fail even once, then our ongoing obedience cannot repay the debt that we have incurred for that past disobedience. Even if we continue on in obedience and never fail again, this avails us nothing, for we are still in debt for that past sin. Nothing we can do can repay this past debt. This is because any and all ongoing or subsequent obedience is already required. If your obedience is already required, it cannot make up for what was owed. To be counted as righteous, though, man must satisfy God's honor through perfect obedience. The obvious problem for mankind is that this cannot be done by fallen man. We have no hope in ourselves. As a result, who can satisfy God's honor? Well, Anselm argues that only God himself can satisfy his own honor. Only God can satisfy the honor that is due to God. But there's an even bigger problem there. God does not owe himself anything. God is not indebted to himself. So how can man be saved? And towards the end of the dialogue, we read this. Anselm states, Therefore, none but God can make this satisfaction. Boso replies, So it appears. Anselm then states, But none but a man ought to do this. Otherwise, man does not make the satisfaction. And Basso states, Nothing seems more just. Anselm then concludes his argument in this way. Therefore, in order that the God-man may perform this, it is necessary that the same being should be perfect God and perfect man in order to make this atonement. For he cannot and ought not do it unless he be very God and very man. So thus, Anselm argues that Christ, being fully God, satisfies the righteous requirements of the law, and by being fully man, 
He is our propitiation, or he is our substitute. He stands on our behalf as our federal head. In this way, he secures our redemption from sin and death. He redeems us from our fallen state and satisfies the wrath of the Father. That, according to Paul, is the second spiritual blessing, our redemption through the blood of Christ. He continues on. The third spiritual blessing is divine revelation of this plan. Verses 8 through 10 state, Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God indeed has blessed us with his word, the revelation of his plan. But have you ever thought that God was not forced to do that? He was not coerced or forced to give us scripture. He didn't have to divulge the plan. Hypothetically, Christ could have been born at the same time and fulfilled the requirements of the law and still have been crucified and atoned for our sins and no one would have been the wiser. But on the contrary, the Lord was gracious to us and saw fit to record the story so well that it is the single most reliable and accurate historical account that exists. The Bible is hands down and without a doubt the most pure and reliable document from antiquity, or before 400 AD. It has been said that to to deny the authenticity of the Bible and to regard it as corrupted or changed would require us to deny every piece of historical evidence that exists prior to 400 AD. I've heard it said that there is more evidence that Christ lived in the first century and that he had 12 disciples than there actually is written documentation that Abraham Lincoln was president. There's more physical evidence that supports Christ's uh, life than our 16th president who was merely, you know, 200 years ago. This is the richness of God's revelation that he has blessed us with. He has masterfully preserved his word throughout the history of the church. So that is the third spiritual blessing. And the final and fourth spiritual blessing is, of course, the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is the sign and seal of our redemption, of the grace of God of the presence of God's atonement in our lives. And Paul states this in verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of that inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. These spiritual blessings are the riches of his grace. The phrase, the riches of his grace, is directly tied with what Paul is referring to as these spiritual blessings. And they are election, redemption, God's word, his revelation, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the substance the meat of God's grace. He has given us everything we need for fellowship with himself. 
and we have all that we need to grow in the knowledge of Christ, we even now have confidence and joy for our eternal security and hope. In this, day, in this way, we indeed have been lavished with his grace. He has withheld nothing from us. This is precisely why Paul says later in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. God has, in fact, given us many gifts. And we can be fully aware of these gifts, and we may still ask that same question that we ask all the time, so what? What does this have to do with me? That's great. I'm elected. I have redemption. I have God's word and his Holy Spirit. But how does that translate to my day-to-day life? How does that help me? How do these spiritual blessings and his grace help my marriage? How do they help me raise my children? How do they help me run my business or interact with other people? I'm glad you asked. How can we, who have been given so much, rather, who have been lavished with so many gifts from our Heavenly Father, not respond and live with joy and gratitude in every area of our lives? We are rich beyond measure, so why should we act poor? We cannot be separated from God, so why do we act as though he is far away from us? We have new life that cannot be taken away. And as Mike has preached in the last few weeks, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we might go to heaven a little sooner than we might prefer. That's the worst injury that we can suffer. That's the worst thing that can happen to us. So how can we, in the face of all of this, still have a selfish and resentful attitude towards our family and friends? How can we honestly know of his grace and his goodness to us and still come home each day and neglect our spouse simply because it was a hard day? It was a long day. Or how can we experience his kindness and patience and still snap at the child who spills his cereal bowl all over the floor. That was a hypothetical situation. Not, Not looking at anybody in particular. When we act in these selfish and rude ways, in these sinful ways, we are implicitly saying something that is very dangerous. And that is that we are owed We are owed more than what we are currently getting. This is, after all, the spirit of our age and culture. Social justice. We are owed restitution. We are owed prosperity, health and wealth, and a 401k. And so, we start to believe that God is somehow withholding from us. He's somehow not giving us what we deserve. And we start to feel ignored. And we are filled with want and anxiety as a result. But saints, I am here to remind you that the truth is in fact the exact opposite. The only thing that we are owed in our natural state is eternal destruction and separation from God. That is what we deserve. That is our natural birthright. 
Yet we continue to believe and act like the natural firstborn sons of God, as though we were entitled to the rights and the inheritance that he has given to us. Saints, we must always remember that we were adopted. And one cannot be adopted unless he is first a stranger, an alien. We were cut off and separated from God. We had no right to approach him or call him father. So our natural state, our natural birthright, was to die, separated from God because of our sin. That is what each of us deserves. That is our natural condition. That, as I say again, was our natural birthright. But by the grace of God and through the life of Christ, he has rescued us from what we deserve. He no longer gives us what we are actually owed. And he made us, therefore, or rather, he makes us instead co-heirs with himself, blessing us with eternal gifts and lavishing us with his grace and his mercy. This, my, my friends, is the riches of his grace, the substance of his grace. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity. I pray that you will work in us, guide us, teach us to appreciate your grace, to grow in gratitude and thankfulness every day. And may we shine that to the world. May we show your love to the world. May the grace that we have received from you and your son, may we extend it to others. May we shine your grace throughout this land. And Father, I pray that you will bless us in all of this. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen.